if you want God's people, you will find them in the furnace. So said Spurgeon when he preached from Isaiah 48.10, that, that passage where it says that he has chosen us in the furnace of affliction. The Lord's people often go through times of hardship, and the prophets certainly were called to a time where they had to minister to a people who were in hardship, where the remnant were looking for encouragement in that hardship, and where others were trying to reframe what actually was going on. In fact, if you go to the last few verses of the previous chapter, you'll see that false teachers were not helping in what God was communicating to his people. Verse 10 of Isaiah 56, his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. They are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his gain from his quarter. Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. Their attitude was, well, stay positive. Tomorrow will be no different than today, and let us just, as it were, eat, drink, and be merry. And as is revealed here, they are blind, they are ignorant, they cannot communicate the message. They are shepherds that cannot understand. And this distorted view even resulted in them misunderstanding the, what would appear to be even the premature death of some in their midst. The opening verses, look at verse 1, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. So these good, good men are passing away, and people aren't listening even to that message Merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. That God actually in his mercy to these godly was taking them away before the judgment would fall. And this again was meant to be a providential message so that those watching on would recognize that, look, one after another you see the godly taken away. Why is the Lord doing this? What message is contained in this providence? These people were not content with the Lord's revelation, verse 3. But draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. These are, these are people that are going to false messengers. And they had been committing spiritual adultery. This is their condition. And they mocked the faithful, verse 4. Against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? And their mockery and their slighting of all, even of the faithful and the Lord himself. They showed the true nature of their hearts. They were engaged in, in false worship, public false worship, and child sacrifice, verses 5 through 7. Inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering. Thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? These are, these are sacrifices to false gods. Upon a lofty and high mountain 
hast thou set thy bed, even thither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. And it wasn't just public, it was private too, verse 8. Behind the doors also, and the post, hast thou set up thy remembrance. For thou hast discovered thyself to another than me, and art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed, and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. You've given yourself to false gods. You've entered into a relationship with them. You have, therefore, committed spiritual adultery. And, of course, this wasn't the only compromise or wickedness that was going on in their lives. There was also what they were doing practically. It wasn't just religious in their practice, religiously, but also in their uh, alliances as well. Verse 9 seems to indicate how they went to uh, other leaders of other nations as well. Thou wentest to the king with ointment, and didst increase thy perfumes, and didst send thy messengers far off, and didst debase thyself even unto hell. Entered into alliances, willing to do whatever they could in order to, again, do what they could to uh, protect themselves, uh, make ready for the future, and again, debasing themselves in their, their alliances with other nations and others around them. Verse 10 then exposes what their experience was amidst all of this. Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way. This, this long, arduous path they've been on wearied them. And you would have thought amidst the wearying of this that they would eventually come to terms with what God was saying to them, repent, turn away from their sin and turn on to the Lord. Instead, yet saidest thou not, there is no hope. They didn't come to this point. Thou hast found the life of thine hand. In other words, you've been rejuvenated. Therefore, thou wast not grieved. It's human ingenuity and resolve on display. The success of false religion and human alliance. God humbling men through failed efforts. And instead of turning to God, they carry on finding another way to exist. This is what men do, of course. We go and we present the gospel to people. We point them to Christ and we say to them, look and live. There is a free, full, perfect pardon found in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And instead, they find something else to run to. Find something else to solve their conscience. Turning to their own inventions. Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way. I thought about how God brings men to wearying experiences. Of course, this is speaking directed towards those that are needing to repent. But I believe it has application too to all the Lord's people. That there are times when the Lord is speaking. And we're not listening. And all that's going on wearies us and is meant to drive us to Him. And still we do not turn to him as we should. The inclination to self-sufficiency is in us all. Our ability to stoically present our issues to God and carry on with our lives without feeling hopelessness is a pitfall. There are times we're meant to feel our hopelessness. Yet saidest thou not, there is no hope. That's what they should have said. They should have realized there's no hope. We need to turn to the Lord. Sometimes even the Lord's people 
those truly his still fall into this trap. The Lord reveals that our greatest experiences with him are often married to our greatest experiences of humbling and brokenness. And there's the context when you come to verse 15 that may be one of the more well-known verses of this section. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God orders things to break us. He orders things to bring us to a place of humility. And still, we are going to dig our heels in and find a way through ourselves. That is not the way it should be for any of us. So as we reflect on this, I've just taken verse First three verse, words, rather, verse 10, thou art wearied, thou art wearied. Because I think that captures the essence of where they were, and yet they would not reflect on this wearying properly. And as I say, I think even those of us who know the Lord truly still can fall into this trap. Just two simple heads here as we think of its causes and its remedies. Its causes, thou art Wearied. I'll just touch on this. I'll not spend any time. What were the causes of them being brought to this point? First of all, divine providence. All the judgment, all the experience that they were going through, the captivity, and the feeling of God's judgment upon them, that these circumstances were all ordered by the Lord. They weren't accidental. They weren't just by chance. God had ordered everything. They were meant to be listening, paying heed, realizing that judgment had come. Instead, they found a way to ignore the fact that God was behind all of this. They were meant to say in the midst of the weariness that there is no hope and then turn to the Lord. Instead, They found a way to carry on. God brings us through it. We just sang about it. Every hardship and trial that we go through is is ordered by God. We can point to secondary causes. We can say Satan was behind this, but then we realize that all of his activity is limited and hedged by a sovereign God. We see that in Job's life. Anything else that occurs in your life or on mine is under the direct superintendence of a God who permits or prevents everything that comes to pass or doesn't. Everything. There's nothing that slips his view, nothing that he ignores. Everything to every tiniest detail he governs. So the causes of this wearying, of bringing them to this point of weariness, is God. And so it is with you. Child of God, when you come to these wearying seasons of life where it feels like it's one blow after another and you can't seem to catch a break and you're just overwhelmed by whatever the circumstances may be, never, ever, ever, ever think to yourself that the cause of all of this is something other than God. 
God is over it all. But it's also human sin. It's human sin. Thou art wearied. The very experience of weariness reminds us that we live in a fallen world. Reminds us that we live in a world that is cursed. And so when we feel even weariness, that sense of like we, we're brought to a point where we're wondering, can we go on? That in itself reminds us that man, man's sin put us in this position. And not just Adam, but we ourselves. Our sin is a daily reminder that we're not aliens to this fallen world. We are very much, in a sense, part of it, the very fabric of it. And I know our tendency is to look at those that are worse than us and whatever may be bringing weariness into your life, you look at things and you say, well, it's their fault. You think especially what we do with our politicians and so on. And I can see it, you know, Proverbs 29 too. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. So you, you, can, you can see there's a certain amount of warrant in the fact that like multiplied wickedness tends to result in multiplied miseries. That's true. But no amount of righteous rule, no amount of righteous rule among men can reverse the experience of weariness. We live in the most prosperous nation in the world. Do we live above weariness? Do we avoid the experience of being wearied with life? No. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your circumstances. You're part of this fallen world. Human sin has brought this into the world and there's no avoiding it. So the very experience of it reminds us of the cause. The divine providence of human sin then consider not only the causes, but the remedies. What are the remedies? Thou art wearied. God brings us to this. God orchestrates events so that we feel our weakness and the frailty of our lives. How, how can we navigate such, such seasons? We all get there, beloved. There is, there's no one immune to this. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are, what the other circumstances of your life may be. You come to times where it feels like you're really not quite sure how you're going to carry on. And it comes in various forms. The, the, the gateways into that experience are innumerable. And it can come suddenly. Sometimes predictably, sometimes very unpredictably. It would appear that everything is going well. Nothing can seem to rattle you and then all of a sudden, perhaps sometimes the smallest of things when you look at it, maybe when you stand back and you evaluate afterwards, you wonder, how did this so rattle me? Five things help us remedy when we go through such seasons. First, embrace God's sovereignty in our suffering. Embrace God's sovereignty in our suffering. We have to be very deliberate about this. We have, to, we have to realize that if we are wearied, if we are wearied, that God has so orchestrated it. And we have to then embrace His sovereign governance in our affairs that bring us to this point. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. 
Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. Recognizing God had governed over this and used it to humble the hearts of his people. Job 23.10 He knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. God has governed this. It governs suffering. Embrace God's sovereignty in our suffering. We have to. How else are we able to worship if we do not do this? We can't, we can't do what Job did if we ignore this. Job was able to fall down and worship because he sees that God is not above or beyond or distant from what had happened in his life. Secondly, remember that to follow Christ invites suffering. To follow Christ invites suffering. You chose to follow Christ, right? I'm not talking about the theology of it and he chose you and the like. I get all of that. My point is, you of your volition, though your will was changed by an act of his grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, you, you chose it, right? I remember one man one time saying to me that he didn't understand Calvinism because it was like uh, saying that sinners were tied to a tree and God's inviting them to come, but they couldn't, they couldn't come. And I was, I was literally a new believer, and I was just, it was kind of over my head, but I still remember him putting that image in my mind. He couldn't understand how someone could think that that's, that's the depiction of, of God's salvation, that men are tied to a tree, and God's inviting them to come, but they can't because they're tied to a tree. Later on, when my theology was more clear in my head, I thought back to that, and I said, brother, what you don't realize is man's not tied to the tree. Man's holding on to the tree. Like he's, he has no desire to leave the tree. And it takes a change of his will. But having experienced the change of your will, you ran to Christ. And in running to Christ, there's a certain sense in which you ran into a... The men have suffering. But in running to Christ, you ran into a whole new world of suffering. You opened the door to a new experience of suffering. In addition to what those who are unsaved have to deal with. So when Paul writes to Timothy, just skipping through the chapters of 2 Timothy... Each of the chapters sort of have various texts where Paul is shepherding the younger pastor. Second Timothy 1 verse 8, Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Be thou partaker. It doesn't mean that he deliberately enters into it in the sense of like he, he tries to invite affliction. But he has to recognize that in his calling, as a believer, and perhaps with some additional aspects, as a pastor, be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. You have to resolve that in your mind. This is part of being a Christian. The second chapter, verses 8 and 9. Remember that Jesus Christ 
of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds. He's reminding him of what it costs to follow the Lord. I suffer trouble. The third chapter, verse 12, all that will live God in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The fourth chapter, verse 5, watch thou in all things endure afflictions. Repetition shows you just in that one short epistle that the fall of Christ invites suffering. You should not be surprised by it. You should not be amazed that your identification with Christ will bring suffering in your life. Now, we don't have a government that is actively persecuting in the way that the first century believers and subsequent generations uh, for a number of generations uh, suffered, or even in other parts of the world today. We don't experience that direct kind of harsh persecution even on the martyrdom today. I get it. But your identification with Jesus Christ will often bring division in your family, a sense of division in the place of employment. And you'll know what it is at the cause of your loyalty to Christ, what it is to be afflicted. Thirdly, acknowledge your own weakness. Acknowledge your own weakness. Yes, you embrace God's sovereignty in suffering. You remember that to follow Christ invites suffering then acknowledge your own weakness. Part to get the true remedy for this is to acknowledge your own weakness. Now, this is contrary to so much of the self-empowerment heresy that pervades, I am reticent to say evangelical churches, but they would claim to be evangelical churches. And what you hear in these churches is is self-empowerment, it is Tony Robbins wrapped up in Christianese. And people are so biblically illiterate and so out of touch with Christianity, true Christianity, they can't even see it for what it is. And the vast majority of Protestant churches in America, and it's being wholesale sold out to every other part of the world as well, that's the kind of message you get because that's the kind of message that sells. Because you want to feel empowered. You want to feel that you're great and wonderful. And you can reach for the stars and it's all about you. Where is that? You have to take massive leaps in Scripture to come to those conclusions. The Lord humbles men. Again, look at what it says. He's he's wanting them to express that there is no hope. That's what verse 10 says. Yet saidest thou not, there is no hope. This is what you should have said. Thou hast found the life of thine hand. This is, this is what the self-help gurus, this is what the average pastor in the big churches of America today, so just like, you, find, you find life in your own hand. 
As I noted already in verse 15, it's, it's the opposite. The high and lofty one does not dwell with high and lofty people. He dwells in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Broken people. People who see God's hand in their lives recognize the consequences of sin in their lives and are constantly aware that they ought to be in hell. And with that, there's this kind of ongoing brokenness. Now, this can go too far. There certainly are those that can, they have a certain bent in their mind and they, they keep themselves in a I don't want to say a false state but there is a there is such a form of brokenness that they can find no joy and that's clearly not what the Lord wants either that his people are to have joy that's one of the paradoxes of a balanced Christian life. One of the paradoxes of a balanced Christian life is to be shattered in your own spirit and yet joyful. Only the Christian can have that. He knows himself to be a sinner. He knows himself to be worthy of the lowest hell. He acknowledges that, that it put the Son of God on the cross. He suffered. He bore the wrath of God. He was judged for our sin. And he can never take that lightly. He can't just cruise through life. The cross is that constant emblem of the cost to procure our salvation. And it keeps this brokenness within our souls. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. When you're weary through life, Christian, when you know God is so sovereign in all things, acknowledge your weakness. Don't try to find answers in yourself. But that's what they were doing, finding solutions in themselves. Fourthly, intentionally rest in your union with Christ. Intentionally rest in your union with Christ. You are joined to Christ. And he invites us, not just once, but I would say it is a daily thing, to come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there you are weary with whatever's going on. What are you to do? Well, you came to Jesus Christ for rest from the burden of your sin. And yet, is it not right that you come to him again and again and again in the weariness of life itself? Does he not open his arms to embrace continually his people who are broken, who are fed up, who are weary, who are discouraged and melancholy? Again, this is where Psalm 44 finds its triumph in Christ. 
Because when you read Psalm 44, and I've mentioned this several times, but the quotation of Psalm 44 that's found in Romans 8. I'll read the passage from Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written? Thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. It seems like God sells us for nothing into suffering. And we wonder what he's doing. But Paul's conclusion is, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Not because you achieve all your dreams in this life. Not because you have wealth and happiness and health and everything else your heart could desire. All these things the Gentiles seek. But what the Christian has, what the Christian possesses, is this supernatural, God-given blessing of triumphing in our sorrows, of being more than conquerors, even when we're accounted as sheep for slaughter. And we have to intentionally then rest in our union with Christ because in Him we understand suffering. In Him we find consolation in our suffering. Bring your heart in your weariness. into the arms of Christ, deliberately, conscientiously. We will not live forever. We act sometimes like we nearly think that's the future for us in this world. And even a long life is a short pilgrimage. So God in His providence, He takes children, He takes teenagers, He takes those in their 20s, their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, all, no one, no one escapes. The covenant of works is still in play. The day you eat of that fruit, you will die. That promise of death, that curse, still in effect. We will triumph over it. We will, through Christ. Even death has lost its sting and the grave its victory. But oh, beloved, run, run into Christ. All ye that labor that are heavy laden. Finally, Articulate your burdens to God in prayer. Articulate your burdens to God in prayer. He wants to hear your burden, your weariness articulated. He doesn't want you just to feel it. He wants you to express it. We looked at Psalm 5 recently. It begins in this way. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Give ear to my words. Coming with expression of the weariness. 
Psalm 55, verses 17 and 22, is pulling them together. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. You know, Spurgeon, in that sermon, in Isaiah 48.10, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. In that point, it's his first point. If you want God's people, you will find them in the furnace. He walks through the history, just kind of hop, skip and jump from Cain and Abel to Noah and on through, of course, the children of Israel and through it. Just noting that here are people who experienced the furnace of affliction. Right from righteous Abel to all the scoffing and mockery that Noah had to experience to the slavery of the children of Israel, and so on. And so he then says, it is a fact, I say, that you will find religion in the furnace. And so it is. You may be weary, child of God. Make sure you do not dull your spiritual senses to what God is saying. Because he's speaking. He's speaking. He's told you in his word how to respond. The Lord help.